Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and as usual, I'm here with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Today, we are delighted to welcome our guest, Mr. Mark Cooper. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Hello, gang. Lovely to see you. In this episode, we'll be talking at some length with you about the giant figure that is Neil Young, and we'll also discuss a 1982 audio interview with Steve Van Zandt. But let's start by asking you, Mark, about your journey from reviewing the last Sex Pistols gig in San Francisco to creating later with Jules Holland and then becoming head of BBC Music Entertainment. Where did popular music begin for you? Well, probably when it, like for many people who love Rock's Back Pages, I seem to remember the Beatles' Love Me Do coming on a radio somewhere near me and it being like a, a jolt of electricity. It made me feel instantly alive. And really, I never looked back. And, you know, following the Beatles' journey from that moment. And then I suppose actually going to see music I got into acoustic music, folk music in the sort of late 60s. It was a bit more accessible than, say, the psychedelic clubs in 67, 68. So I'd go to uh, Les Cousins in Greek Street yes, and yeah. see all the emerging singer-songwriters and guitar players, the Roy Harpers, the Al Stewart, the Jackson C. Frank, etc. And that was my home, really, my musical home for a couple of years. And at the same time, all the free concerts were happening in Hyde Park, and other venues around London, I'd get to go and see, I don't know, Jefferson Airplane in Parliament Hill Fields or Pink Floyd do Atom Heart Mother in Hyde Park, Traffic and Nice in Hyde Park. So really by that point, music was just my thing and a lot of other people's, although not, not that many other people's in a sense because that was still a world in which if you sat in the tube and you caught the eye of somebody whose hair covered their ears, <laughs> you probably flashed each other a peace sign. So, yeah, I guess, you know, yeah. yeah, for me, for me, that was, you know, that was my gang. I may well have flashed a peace sign at you in Hyde Park. And one of the you, a peace events. sign, Pringle. I oh, find yeah. that hard to believe, man. It was, it was obligatory. <laughs> yeah, you didn't mean it, man, but you flashed it. <laughs> That's funny. But I, I saw you on Mark Allen and Dave Hepworth's Word podcast. I think you said your very first gig was Esther and Abby O'Farrell. Or did I mishear that? No, you didn't. I'm, I can be very proud of that. And also it was with my mother and sister. So, you know, I think that was Very going to the Albert Hall for the first time at probably 14 or 15. Esther was a wonderful singer. She did a great version of the Bee Gees' Morning of My Life and, you know, was a transfixing singer. This was, I think, just after probably they'd won, you know, the Eurovision Song yeah. Contest. Yeah. Abby went on to be involved in managing Cannes in the early days of Cannes. Did he? All extraordinary things. You'd think somehow he'd be a bit like Sonny Bono, really, wouldn't you? You know, and <laughs> Esther was his share. But um, that was my first one. And then I went a lot to the Albert Hall. I saw Leonard Cohen and Simon and Garfunkel there. And I've still got a programme of a gig with family and Tim Hardin. So the Albert, you know, I very quickly was able to graduate. The Albert Hall, I think my parents approved. And, you know, at 15, that still <laughs> mattered, you know, that, that I could go to the Albert Hall. Although they probably wanted me to wear a tie. <laughs> you go to the Albert Hall, but not to the Roundhouse. The I don't think I heard of the Roundhouse. I okay. probably heard of the Roundhouse when the Doors played there, and I think the Jefferson Airplane played there. But I could go to the free concert instead. So, 
Well, you these two marks, you you must have sort of jostled elbows, if not shared joints, at at one of these <laughs> shows. <laughs> That's very funny. Let's fast forward. I'm going to ask you, how did you end up in California in the late seventies? Because that's where you started writing, I think. That's right. Well. Yes, the idea of writing or really being involved in music other than as a, a sort of open-mouthed, wonderful fan was always seemed very strange. So it was something other people did. I always read writing about music avidly. I went to California really not to get a proper job and to study. I went there to do a PhD and I went initially to Kent State, Ohio, which was a bit of a conservative school, although I was lucky enough to see Patti Smith there at, uh, in Cleveland, and Devo were just coming out of, out of there at that time. But then I moved after a year to escape the horrible Midwestern winters and went to Santa Barbara. And I had a friend, a guy called John Shearlaw, who was the news editor of Record Mirror, who I'd been at university with as an undergraduate, and he, I think, worked out that the Sex Pistols were playing there than that I was in San Francisco. So I was probably more of a deadhead at that point. And that's how I knew Winterland, where the Sex Pistols played. But I was interested. You know, I'd seen the damn front cover, etc. I, I actually managed to leave England literally as punk took off. I think I left in about a week after the Sex Pistols played uh, Screen on the Green in Islington. Gosh. So you missed, so, and, but then you did get to see their last sort of official gig. I got to see their show. last official gig, which, you know, because it was in Bill Graham's Winterland, was great theatre. And it, it set the scene for really what I'd write about for a lot of the next two or three years, which is brilliant but rather smug and quite small British bands playing in a land which was largely enslaved to Journey and Supertramp and Fleetwood Mac, certainly on the radio. And the bands would come and play the Whiskey or the Old Wardorf or the Starwood or, you know, one of those small boutique venues and rail at American radio usually and be fantastic because you were seeing them in a tiny venue. I mean, I saw the police, his first gig at the Whiskey, the Jam's first gig, Elvis Costello and the Attractions, on and on. But there was always this great cultural frisson, the sense that America was quite a few years behind as far as the Brits were concerned. Mm. And also that, they, that what they were trading in, which was the kind of energy and anger and vitriol, made no sense, at least to American radio and the powers that be in America. I mean, obviously, very quickly, it began to make sense in L.A. And, you know, bands like X were emerging, who I loved. Yeah. Not least with that, the dual vocals reminded me of Jefferson Airplane, Marty Bell yes, and Grace Slick. But everything about them, the rockabilly edge, the sense of character. And, you know, gradually a scene emerged there. And then in San Francisco at the Mabuhe with Dead Kennedys, etc., but initially, it felt very much stranger in a strange land. And the theatre of watching those bands and artists encounter, you know, the American record business, L.A., two kind of worlds of prejudices meeting and really failing to comprehend each other was a great subject to write about. And the Sex Pistols was probably a pretty archetypal version of that, you know, an interested but basically incomprehending crowd a band that was kind of by that point on its last legs with Sid very obviously a passenger 
you know, in so mm. many ways, musically and I think personally at that point. And Leiden's sense of utter frustration, you know, with, with the world of America, with the band, probably with the management at that point. And yet in another way, it was sort of utterly thrilling, more culturally than musically, probably. But So you actually heard him utter the, the immortal phrase. I did, yes, phrase. and it went in my Although, review. I didn't, I didn't copy it. Now it seems mythological, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, inevitably, because you were probably scrawling in a notebook, if that, you got it slightly wrong. Yes, uh, sure. Which we will forgive. I think you have it as, have you ever felt cheated, Dan? And that the line because ever get the feeling you've been cheesy. Yes. I think we can allow. Um, yes, I, I, I mean, <laughs> Johnningham got it. We, interestingly, we've got three reviews of that show. Johnningham's review, in fact, four. We've got Harvey Kubernetes for the Melody Maker, Johnningham's for Sounds, and Philip Elwood for the San Francisco Examiner. And yours, it's, it's, it's great. We've got four reviews of this great of this this show, which is. And that's Pure the first luck. piece we have by you. A first of many of your excellent pieces we've got on Rock's back pages. It reads like someone who's been reviewing and writing about pop music for 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 some time. It's 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 very it's very smart and and insightful. I mean, did you find it came easily to you naturally to you? I think that one probably I did because I was so excited by it and inspired by it, and I felt having been asked to write, it was like being given permission a go flag or something because I was so immersed and I'd read, you know. I'd grown up reading The Enemy, et cetera, and, you know, I read everything I could get my hands on. I was immersed in the culture. I just hadn't really occurred to me that I could do it. I guess it was my own punk moment, really. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I started, you know, from there, I started very quickly getting on this circuit where I'd get invited, you know, by the the international people to go and see bands come. And then I had that moment that I think most journalists went through after about a year. I was starting to do it and it was becoming more like a business and I was writing about more things, not for money, but, you know, for, for a job. You know, I'd go and, I don't know, see Ronnie Wood and Keith Richards' band, The New Barbarians in L.A., and I wouldn't really be that interested in the band, at least not to begin with. And, and I stopped for a little while because it felt like I'd, started off doing something completely for love and and now I was doing it more for a job and then I missed it and I realized it was something I loved and I I guess that's when you start to become both a writer and probably a hack the two words go together <laughs> the two words rather go together but so I started to um I started to diversify and do more interviews I did a, a piece with peaches and herb the first interview I ever did with, was with Tom Petty at Shelter Studios Oh. And what I remember most about that was I didn't have a car and I hitchhiked down to L.A. And everybody who picked me up on the 90 miles from Santa Barbara to L.A. felt like they wanted to kill me. They all felt like they were <laughs> Charles Manson. You know, they, they all had their different psychotic re By 78, you know, or 79, the idea of hitchhiking in Southern California was long gone, really. I mean... I'd, I'd grown up as it. It became more like Neil Young's song, Hitchhiker. And you wouldn't necessarily want to be picked up by that guy. No, precisely. <laughs> what took you back to the UK, Mark? Had you just finished your studies or what? I'd sort of ground to an end of my studies. and um, Studies in what? What, was, what were you doing your PhD on? Well, I went to do a PhD on Thomas Pynchon and contemporary wow. American fiction. I was very inspired by the teacher, a guy called Tony Tanner, who wrote the book City of Words about American fiction. 
and yes. I'd read and I'd written an M I did an MA in American studies at Sussex and I went to America on the back of that and I thought and the longer I stayed in America the more I became interested in the roots I guess I receded from the present which I found slightly terrifying maybe and I became <laughs> more and more interested in the whole transatlantic dialogue and I had a teacher at Santa Barbara who really inspired me in Henry James so I I was going to be about Henry James and like late I was going to write my thesis about the late 19th century novel and Henry James and what you could and couldn't say in it. It was going to be called The Unspoken Word, Secrecy and Disclosure in the Late Novels of Henry James. I love it. I love it that <laughs> it all comes back to you so clearly yes. so many years And it later. was actually such a good title and such a good thesis that it, they, they didn't see much point in writing it. <laughs> <laughs> you just submitted the title. <laughs> the title, I sort of knew what it was going to be, and <laughs> I'd love to write it now. Sometimes I think I'll go back and write it. But um, so I traveled back across America by train from Santa Barbara. I I headed back for my sister's wedding, which was, I think, in late summer in England or October, you know, towards in autumn. I got a train. I went to via Chicago. I went to see Bruce Springsteen on the river tour in Milwaukee. Oh, well, we've got that review. Yeah, I went there, which was absolutely brilliant. And then on to New York, spend a week with some friends in New York and arrived back in England. And I got a staff job with Record Mirror, who I'd been writing for for about, you know, a couple of years by that, two and a half years. Yes. So you were on staff there. Yeah. yeah. And I was kind of notably older than everybody, probably apart from my friend John, who was still the news editor, and probably a lot more academic and a lot more highly, um, I'd spent a lot of time in academia. And I was, you know, already probably pushing, uh, I'm trying to think, 1980, I'd have been 28, 29, which was old. Already, <laughs> yeah, for that. Uh, and it was era. 1980, and a new world was beginning. The 80s were arriving, and yeah. when I when I started on Record Mirror, it was you know in so many senses the beginning of the 80s, and I wrote a lot about Susie and the Banshees, who I loved, but I also pretty quickly was doing. I remember doing a cover feature on Tight Fit, where I had to go and interview them in Eastbourne. <laughs> now you're talking. As a reviewer, I wrote, I wrote a lot about indie and reggae as a reviewer. They were the things I liked. To but also, I think my editor delighted in, you know, saying, Mark, go and do tight fit or go and... Uh, uh, Steve Strange. I, did a, I remember doing a profile on Steve Strange, who was yeah. probably already in a slightly bad way in Tony Brainsby's office. And I'm oh, sure Magenta was, Magenta was working for him and it, you know... I, I, so I was quite fascinated by this world. And then after about two two years of doing it, I began to really burn out and being a weekly rock journalist. You probably know the feeling, Barney. And I went and, what, and then I sort of jumped. A record mirror by this time had slimmed down from being like a newspaper to like everything. Everything was becoming smash hit shaped. Yeah. Everyone was getting with the program. The, the world of music was becoming much more commercial, much more focused. And although people still talked a lot about subversion, mm-hmm. most British acts were keen on, you know, selling. You know, yeah. I guess, you know, 
uh, it was probably more Thatcherite than we knew, even we knew at the time in its um, philosophy. By the way, you'd be pleased to know that our only tight fit article on Rock's Back Pages is indeed your interview with him. So, uh, <laughs> so it was all worth it. It was still worth it, Mark. Forget the cool stuff. Tight fit. <laughs> I'm proud of that. <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. I mean, you obviously you got into television at a certain point in the eighties, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But you did continue to write, and I just want to briefly mention this piece from nineteen eighty nine that took you back to Southern California, but a very different Southern California. So there's this piece about NWA that you wrote for the Sunday Correspondent. I don't know you probably wrote it for Mick Brown. I'm not sure. Michael Watts. Yeah. Michael Watts, Michael Watts, of course. Michael Watts, um, the man who, to whom David Bowie confessed or admitted or celebrated being gay. Or pretended to be gay, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, in fact, in fact. <laughs> now, we, had, we, we, we did a wonderful episode with Michael uh, last, last year, Mark, I think it was. Yeah. So, But this is a fascinating piece about, about NWA. I mean, was it interesting for you to go back to this place where you had spent the best part of two years and find yourself in South Central with, with Ice Cube? Well, it was thrilling because I was really interested in burgeoning hip. I probably partly journalistically, I try, I've always tried to be curious about things I don't really understand, and I probably initially didn't really understand hip hop. It's probably something no one admits anymore. But you know, hip hop felt very different. I loved the message and lots of the early records, and I was just fascinated by it culturally. And I did another big piece for Q magazine in which I sort of went to the East Coast and went to Def Jam and met EPMD and Big Daddy Kane and Chuck D, etc. You know, and it felt like a real sort of cultural explosion in America. So I I was interested sociologically in a way. And then NWA's music was so obviously visceral, so obviously threatening, so deliberately in your face, so deliberately provocative. And the piece is quite journalistic. You know, it's very much, I mean, I read it again this morning. It's very much reportage. Ice Cube is great, really honest, direct, Mm -hmm. you know, no bullshit. And I guess I really felt that at that time, not many people were writing about hip hop in the UK, certainly not in the the grown-up pop or rock media. And it felt like a real subject, writing about it. And when I started at the BBC, one of the first things I did was on The Late Show was a a, a hip-hop compilation show called Late Rap, which featured Ice-T and Public Enemy and Queen Latifah and the Jungle Brothers. And it really felt that music deserved a platform. But I suppose being honest about it, it was partly in a way generationally confronting, initially confronting my own fear almost you know i write about it in the piece a bit that there was a people were people forget how afraid people were of hip-hop and how many people dismissed it as not being music etc within the music press let alone in the broader media there was that kind of derision yes and and i didn't believe in that and i wanted to confront it yes well i mean of course you know Fuck the Police was was genuinely shocking at that time and outraged the police force all over America and outraged white America, didn't it? I mean, they were almost like the black sex pistols, you know. Well, uh, I mean, it, you say that, that funny, but mm. I mean, first of all, you know, I've read a great deal about that, your piece included, Mark, and, and, and how 
living in, in Compton was living under a police state to all intents and purposes. And nothing's changed. There's a straight line from fuck the police to George Floyd. You know, and it's a very sh- a long line in terms of history, and yes. a very short one because, as you say, nothing's changed. And of course, there was cop killer as well by Ice T. Yeah. You know, so yeah. there was a war on. And I think, again, initially, they meant every word, but also mm-hmm. hip hop is rhetorical, mm-hmm. and and often, you know, I'm not saying that about this particular line. Often, comic, I I think there's often a complete misunderstanding between the two worlds of what is said and what is meant, just like there was with punk. And you're right, that's a good analogy, because NWA just wanted to confront that police state head on. Yeah. Well, you want to get killed. You know, somewhere in the piece, you say, I ask Ice Cube if his gangster raps, gangster in quote marks at that point, are an act, and he looks positively offended. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I mean, that, his that, line that, is, yeah. That's always the question, isn't it? Yeah. To what degree is this rhetoric, or what degree do you mean it, man? And yeah. in a way, the art and the persona exist somewhere between those two things. And I mean, of course, I'd have been very disappointed if he'd said it's an act, but I, I guess in another way, I wanted him to acknowledge that he wasn't going to, he didn't use the, short, the sawn off and he wasn't going to shoot a cop. And, or you. Or me. Or, <laughs> or, or, and and that, that, that it's rhetorical. You mentioned The Late Show, and so this is a convenient moment to, to ask you about the, the birth or the inception of Later with Jules Holland, which for anyone who doesn't know is probably the most famous television music show that, that's ever been conceived. What was? How did that little chick hatch? Well, The Late Show was on four nights a week, and many of the people who worked with it largely make it like making short films. And I, I like making short films, but I loved the studio straight away. And I started mm-hmm. off booking the bands, that was booking artists. And it had a very broad journalistic policy across, you know, jazz, folk, rock, you know, in a way, a bit like, a bit like, I don't know, who you get, who, who at that time would get reviewed in The Guardian. It had a very broad brief, really, just to look at anything that was exciting in all genres of music and give it a showcase in terms of yep. performance. And so one day you'd have the Kronos Quartet in there. Another day you'd have the Pogues. Another day you might have the Fool with Cold Cut. Another day you might have Public Enemy. And another day you'd have Abdullah Ibrahim. So it, it had a very broad frame of reference. In a way, that was the point of it. And the studio was often empty. And Janet, the director of Later, who's still the director, kept saying, can't we do a music show? Can't we do a music show? And I kept saying, Really? Music shows are a disaster. This was a period, you know, where, <laughs> you know, the old grey whistle test had finished, what, in 86 or 87, Janet Street Porter's World of Youth TV, of Deaf TV, etc. And meanwhile, the first TV show I'd worked on was a show called Wired for Channel 4 with Malcolm yeah. Gary, who'd started the tube. And there was this sense of Channel 4 constantly looking for the new music show. And Wired included most of their attempts ultimately felt inauthentic and not really true. And then I suppose in the beginning of the 90s, there was the kind of explosion of breakfast TV and the word, a kind of shock television. And 
I suppose by that point, I was much more interested in just giving a platform for artists where they could perform. I mean, it's true that shock TV remains probably what people love to write about and enthuse about, about rock and roll TV. And just before I joined The Late Show, it was the famous incident in which the Stone Roses played The Late Show and, you know, tripped tripped the what they call the um, the speakers that meant you couldn't play above a certain volume in the studio because that would hurt the technicians working there. And, you know, came up with the famous line to poor Tracy McLeod, amateurs, amateurs, yells Ian Brown. And that happened in the October and I started in the January. So I often say that everything that happened in the BBC had already happened before I joined, really, even though I then did 30 years of it. And so later really emerged out of that studio, the desire to have an eclectic bunch of music, but have it all in the room at the same time. Yes. And then finally going to meet Jules at Michael Jackson, who was the editor of The Late Show at the time and went on to run BBC One and then Channel Four. But he, he just said, go meet Jules. And Jules loved the idea of a show that was broad and open and eclectic and welcoming and where... People of any generation could play, whether you were old or young or wherever in the world you were from. And I think both of us had reached the point that, you know, Jules had done, in a way, with the tube, Cocker Snooker Television, brilliantly. Yeah. But, you know, he'd done the Sunday night show in New York at the end of the 80s, which was a very eclectic performance music show, working with the likes of David Sanborn and, you know, worked in much more music, broad musical territory. And and I guess that's what excited us both about later. And then the idea of all the artists being in the room at the same time was kind of driven by Janet, the idea of the circle and the idea that that she would film it, as it were, outwards, that the cameras and jewels would be the eye of the room and everything would be for the viewer at home, that it wouldn't really be about an audience watching the music, that you would have the, the best seat in the house as the viewer through Jules and, and the cameras. When did you know that, it, that the format was working? When did you think, actually, do you know what, this works? Well, initially, very early on, I tried to theme the early shows and curate them through a genre. So you'd, I'd do a show that I had a vague country strain or a, even the first show has a vague R&B or soul strain, you know, mixing the yeah. Neville Brothers and the Christians and D-Influence. That became very quickly obvious that that would, you know, just not have legs. And then I suppose I quite quickly learned that actually the opposite was true and that it was a show of contrast, you know, even in a crass sense, the variety show. And the more that because music was the central narrative of the show, that the bigger the contrast, you know, often going from quiet to loud, from, you know, one genre to another from, you know, a a very young artist to an old artist, that there was a kind of real pleasure in that disjunction and shock and a narrative. But I guess the first moment it really felt magical to me. I I, I still remember Leonard Cohen coming on the show for the Future album. In fact, they repeated a song from it on the show that Jarvis did, Talking with Jules, the other week. And... He had a magical band. He had this wonderful sense of theatrical interaction with his two singers. And he finished the show with Dance Me to the End of Love. And Jellyfish were on the show and Sharon Elston and Aztec Camera. And Dance Me to the End of Love, he played it for about 15 minutes. (laughs) And in a very Leonard Cohen way, gradually the room just became, it was like the whole room was swaying. 
And all the artists were standing up to the microphone and moving with him. And I suppose the sense that was the, the show that really gave us a sense that the show could be a kind of community, that it could be larger than the sum of its parts. And of course, it wasn't always, it's not always about building that community in a night, but that, that sense of everybody being in the room together was at the heart of the DNA of the show. In some ways, it sort of broke down the tribalism that had fueled so much pop culture, and there was there was a sense of a broader community and mutual respect between the generations. Yes, and that very surprisingly perhaps came as much from the musicians as it did from my broad interest or Jules's broad interest. You know, I still remember, I say an artist, a, you know, really good R&B singer, Sunshine Anderson, being on the show with Nick Cave and saying how great it was to be in a, to meet Nick and be on the show with him and that this would never happen in America, that, you know, that, that sense of a straight-jacketed, you know, Funny enough, in a way, it does happen now in America. You look at Coachella or something like that. But certainly for the first 10, probably 20 years later, they were still very codified by radio formats and black and white music, etc. I think it's breaking down now again in America. But mm. later was always about, you know, I'd grown up going to those free concerts where you might see, I don't know, Captain Beefheart and the Maynard Ferguson big band and then Donovan. And in a funny Indeed. way, later echoed that, that it, you know, it would deliberately roam across genres and size of bands from solo spots to larger bands and ring the changes between those. I, I, I've always loved that. And there's a sense very of, there's very a sense much of what in Bill Graham was doing at Fillmore's at the end of the 60s and 70, putting on Miles Davis as a Grateful Dead, for example, that those sorts of combinations uh, and then that evaporated, and, which is a great shame. So I think it's very valuable bringing that. It's interesting as well what you said about the fact that it was maybe surprising the musicians were not bothered about that variety and actually were appreciative of it. I think that's looking back, you know, perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, it's not that surprising because musicians often just respect music as a craft regardless of genre, and the genre is a sort of construct that's placed on by the industry and tribalism is fueled often less by the musicians themselves than by the business trying to make the business work kind of thing. So I, I think that's that's a very nice and organic thing about people that appreciate music appreciate music, I think, at the end of the day. That's true. But I suppose when we were building later, you know, and particularly for the first five years, there was a sense that people were very wary of that, you know, and particularly British artists mm. and particularly the cooler bands. You know, and this is obviously the emergence of Britpop. You know, what would it say sure. for their brand? What would it say for Brett Anderson or, or Damon or, or yeah. Polly mm -hmm. Harvey or whoever to stand in a room with those people? And particularly, you know, we always started the show with the groove, which was a kind of musical joke as far as we were concerned, you know, because the groove just announced here we all are in the room together. And frequently it wasn't very musical, which I personally thought was funny. It was probably excruciating for a lot of the audience because obviously, you know, and quite often people would play and have fun with that. But I suppose there was also a sense of community and that can feel a bit like joining a scout troop. 
And I think for the <laughs> I think for the cooler bands, they almost, particularly the lead singers, had to find out a way, you know, a Morrissey or a Brett. How did this suit their brands to join? I do distinctly remember mostly you, you, the other bands would be watching whoever's playing with a great deal of interest. Every now and again, it would invariably be a Britpop band where they'd be sitting there sneering with their sort of arms folded and curling their lips. And I just remember just thinking, God, you prats, you know, just get over yourselves. But I, <laughs> I look back on that and think if it's all part of the theatre. Yeah. You know, yeah. and in a way that told you a lot about the Britpop bands. And yes, probably. <laughs> and, you know, look at Damon, you know, who might have been well, one of those people, you know. Probably Damon was more horrified with the first time he was on because he was on with Garth Brooks. And, right. and Soul to Soul on their second album. And he's probably more horrified by Garth Brooks than me. But, you know, when you look at, say, the journey that he's been yeah. on, you know. Precisely, um, the Marley music and You so know, forth. and I think when yeah. you're in a band and you're young and you're starting out and, and you have an absolute vision of the world and a vision of what you, you are, and part of that, a bit like going back to those punk rock groups in, in L.A. that I first saw, your contempt for everything else is part of what drives you. You know, your desire to be top of the tree, to replace what you see as the assats and the bogus. And so I think you would inevitably see some of the theatre of that play out in the show. And, yeah, of course, initially it used to worry me. And, you know, I think everybody should join in. But I very quickly realised it didn't matter. It was all part of it, really. I mean, famously, and he wrote about it in his book, Jar Wobble Describes, being on the show and being absolutely insulted to play in the groove and insulting his music and, you know, his <laughs> musicianship. And he describes quite a lot of things that I don't remember happening of being, you know, pressure being put on him to join in. Whereas, you know, I don't think I'd have done that. I think very quick I'd have said, hey, whatever, because you can't make people do things. No. Musicians particularly, what would be the point of a music show that made musicians yeah. do things? But the funniest thing was he was on the show with Bonnie Raitt and Jimmy Bourne and, you know, who, all of him were very happy to play, the, to be, participate in the groove with the other artists. And there was Jar Wobble and his band sort of going, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very funny. At what point did you move into making long-form music documentaries? Probably early, quite early in 2005. I think, you know, I'm it, well, actually in the late 90s, we did a couple of series called Young Guns Go For It about yeah. bands in the 80s, which was lo- already looking back and wanting to look at the moment in which those bands, what, what had, why those bands had imploded, really. How mm-hmm. they, it was the story we did everybody from, I don't know, Madness to Banana Rama to Soft Cell and the first series Culture Club Spandau, mm-hmm. and in a way the stories of how those bands imploded against the industry, you know, and how the brotherhood of each or sisterhood of the, each group had in a way imploded. We did the Smiths. There was a sense of you know, I suppose the story we wanted to tell was partly about money and the record industry and mm-hmm. the moment in which the journey of those bands and the moment in which they become a successful business and how often that destroys the groups. And those felt like very 80s stories. So that got me going on the format with uh, the director, Mike Connolly, who's, you know, a very successful producer, director to this day. So he and I, and he and I also, we made a few films. We made a film about Pulp. Uh, I thought he made a film about Shane McGowan, a brilliant film about Shane McGowan. Mm -hmm. 
And I exact a few films, one about Captain Beefheart that Elaine Shepard made and another film about Ray Davies by Vanessa Engel. And then when BBC, you know, a few years later, we took a long time to make those two series. There was about two years between the two series of Young Guns. And then uh, BBC Four started going, and originally Mm -hmm. BBC Four very much started covering events, covering festivals. But we made the the series Jazz Britannia, and that was kind of the which told the story of the British jazz journey. And Mike came up with the title Britannia to, to as a title for the series, and Britannia became a whole way of seeing to us, yeah. you know, seeing yeah. the music in the context of the culture and a British society. It was just a an immediate way of seeing those genres and. Yeah. You know, in a way, we just rolled that out. We made a lot no. of them, jazz, folk, you know. Um... I, I thought they, they were marvellous. I mean, there was something about BBC4 and uh, whatever it is, Britannia, and later on, whatever it is, America, sort of these these series, were, were really fantastic documentary filmmaking about music in a way that I hadn't really seen a great deal of before. I found myself watching stuff about a subject I wasn't personally interested in, and still being hooked into into the programs for reasons of lack of time um i i think we'll jump forward to the film that you made about neil young and the reason we're talking about neil young mark as i don't need to tell you is the release of the second volume of his uh, <laughs> his enormous <laughs> is volume it? Is it that big? <laughs> archives project yeah which comes out this week we've only been waiting 11 years for it and i think maybe why don't we just start with a very short clip of neil talking about the first volume of archives uh, this is to bud scopper in 2005 I wanted to I wanted to get a little info from you about the the first volume of the archives. Uh, you said uh, I think it covers sixty three to nineteen seventy, right? Seventy three to seventy three to oh. seventy three. Eight wow. discs, DVDs, mm-hmm. eight DVDs or eight CDs, but I recommend the DVD. What's the earliest song? Uh, the first, the earliest song would be um, I think it's a song called Aurora. And the Sultan. That's my first record. But then there were from from Canada. From Canada. But yeah. then there's three or four other tapes that I made for records that never came out back yeah. then in 1963. Uh-huh. How much of that stuff are we going to hear? It's instrumental stuff. It's all on oh. there. Oh, it's all there. Tell me why. <laughs> It's all there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? I mean, so this this second volume is, I believe it's a 131 tracks, 63 of them previously unreleased. And Mark, as I'm sure you know, it both Marks, it spans the years 72 to 76, which I think many would agree are probably his greatest yeah. years the greatest albums he made are in that stretch of time tell us about you landing that very big fish for that film and in, in 2008 mark don't be denied well chrome dreams 2 was coming out and somebody from the record company said do you want to go to america and interview neil and do something about chrome dreams 2 for tv 
And I said, well, I don't really want to do Chrome Dreams too, but I would love to talk to Neil about his journey. And this went back and forth for about three weeks. In the end, they started saying, oh, yeah, you can talk about everything to him. You can do a broader profile. And myself and Ben Wally, who, you know, was emerging as a producer director at that point, flew to New York and went to this very posh hotel on the Upper West Side, I think. The Carlisle. That's the Carlisle, where Neil had a, a labradoodle with him and, you know, <laughs> probably an entourage. I mean, I'd met him two or three times at that point. You know, there's a couple of other pieces on the Rocks Back Pages site. Once in 89 on the Freedom Album, the video shoot for Keep On Rocking in the Free World in the Valley. Yes. And once at that bar, I think, where they shot the Harvest Moon video outside, not too far from his farm. In, not that I mean, want to imply by any stretch that he had any idea who I was, because, of course, he didn't when we met again in, in the car lab. But I knew who he was. And, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good start. And, you know, we set up all the cameras in the room. And Neil had had a brain aneurysm the year before. I think in that very same hotel he'd been stricken in New York. And there was a kind of new sense of mortality about him. And maybe that's... And just before we did the interview, what I most remember about it is Elliot Roberts, his manager, who I'd met quite a few times over the years, coming up to me and saying, you know, Neil doesn't want to talk about the past. You know, let's just talk about Chrome Dreams too. And when, the first, when we do the archive thing, when that comes out, we'll talk to you again, you know. So he just sort of pulled the complete rug from the interview, really, as far as I was concerned. And then I, but Elliot was kind of, you know, my experience of him already was Elliot was a great trickster. And so I yes. just thought, well, I'll just start and see what happens uh, with the interview. And I think the first time, what I asked him was, what, what was the, when was the first time you remember playing in New York, you know, as an icebreaker? And he started talking about Buffalo Springfield opening for the doors in New York in probably, what, 67, 66? Yeah, probably at Ondine's. Yeah, and, and the minute he started talking about that, I thought, I'm in here. This is all right. <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah, he got your foot in the door. If he's prepared to talk about that, then I'm just going to talk to him like I've always wanted to talk to him in a broad sense, you know, because yeah. the other two times I'd talked to him, although he was great on his aesthetic, he was very much, you know, focused on that record, that Freedom and then the Pearl Jam record. And obviously, you know, being a lifelong fan, I wanted to go on a broader broader trajectory. So I did, you know, and we did about an hour, an hour and a half interview, and he was great. And of course, we did talk about Chrome 2 a bit, which is a pretty good record. But, you know, he went pretty much everywhere, including, you know, talking quite a bit about the making of After the Gold Rush. And we talked a bit, quite a bit about Charles Manson, as I recall, and the, On the sure. Beach, because... I think On the Beach is probably my favourite Neil Young record, even if arguably it is the most depressed. I was thinking about so <laughs> Neil before we did this, because so many of our greatest writers have come out and explained their battles with depression, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Leonard Cohen. And I often wonder, certainly at this point in time, I think, you know, you can tell that Neil is having his own battle with cultural exhaustion, maybe literally depression, you know. He's spreading mm. out with... Kerry Snodgrass's girlfriend. He's going through yes. a very dark time, and so is the culture. 
Well, Archives Volume 2, uh, suffice to say, it is, it is the sound of Neil Young, in a sense, throwing off the sort of shackles of, of the way he's been seen, which is, you know, the mellow singer-songwriter of Heart of Gold, which was his biggest hit. And in almost like a kind of punk rock way, Neil just totally changes direction, doesn't he? I think it'd be a good moment to listen to the second clip because he's essentially answering Adam Sweeting's question about this in 1985. I think subconsciously I set out to destroy that, rip it down before it surrounded me, make it feel a wall building around me. Record company wanted me to do another one of those. So I did Tonight's the Night. <laughs> Tonight's the Night. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Tonight's the Night didn't come out because the record company just couldn't get their heads around. How do you get from Heart of Gold to Tonight's the Night? And it didn't come out till till 75. I mean, is this as a matter of interest, Mark, is, is it your favourite period of Neil? The, 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 I mean, starting with, in fact, Time Fades Away, which he rejected himself for many years, but like On the Beach, Tonight's the Night, and then Zuma at the end of it. I mean, is it your favourite, Neil? Do you know, I don't think I can do that because, you know, I think After the Gold Rush was a record I loved so much and spent so much time with. Right. That and then I went back to everybody knows this is nowhere, and I've loved so many Neil Young records. Yeah. I think it's the one I feel most personal about because I think there's a greater sense of discovery with On the Beach and Tonight's the Night, and because he's so audibly in pain, discomfort, and depressed or angry, or you know, they are the most extreme records that Neil has made, and probably the most autobiographical you know, the most true to the moment in a way that you understand, because I think a lot of Neil's songs are so instinctively emotional. You don't necessarily know how they chime with his life in a particular way, but because we know the story behind Tonight's Tonight, mm-hmm. and because he's singing in a more journalistic way, probably till he the next time he did that again was with Freedom at the end of the 80s. You have this, there's a greater sense of reportage in those two records, you know, a sense of reflecting on a counterculture that he believed in that is turning into a nightmare, you know, the the sense, the sense of failure, the sense of why do I make music? Who's it for? What is the cost? Mm. What is the risk of the drug culture? They're all absolutely there, but as visceral personal experience, there's a kind of verite quality about these records that, you know, who else reported from the front line in that way, yeah. I guess? Yes. And about the drug casualties, obviously, tonight's tonight in, song, yeah. in, in, inspired by that. I mean, we've got three great pieces. In addition to your your piece from 2008, Mark, we've got three pieces from the 70s that sort of chart this moment in, this long moment in Neil's career and they're really including Bud Scopper's great um, enemy cover story on Neil from 75 when Tonight's the Night has just come out. And I actually bought it as a sort of wide-eyed, I don't know what my, I had had Harvest. And I do remember being pretty shocked by Tonight's the Night. You know, it was kind of like, I don't know, some sort of kind of Californian country punk, very noir, 
very, very noir, as the title might suggest. Very, very crudely recorded. It's all done at yes. studio instrument rehearsals, I believe, which is just a rehearsal room, studio instrument rentals, which is a yeah. rental company. And so it's incredibly crudely recorded in no time at all. It was basically kind of bashed out in about four days or something like that. Yes. And I, lo- I love the sound of it, actually. I think, curiously, that odd, you know, pretty stripped-down, raw noise is, is, is fantastic. With Neil sometimes wandering away from the microphone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it is very, very lo-fi. I think it's brilliant. I mean, it's a record I've never stopped listening to. It's very deliberately unpolished, and it's as mm. if, you know, the emotions and the, the languor and the exhaustion and the, the horror of what he's writing about, he just wants to capture that in a verite way. There's nothing polished in the production, as you say, the audio quality or the vocal delivery. or no. And yet, Neil being Neil... It's got some beautiful melodies. Albuquerque, yes. Roll Another Number. These are glorious songs. But also, cinematically, Tired Eyes is probably one of the darkest scenarios. You know, it's like a Tarantino film, you know. That, yes. That, that, you know, it's just yes. a horrible yes, drug it's about a cocaine. De- it's about a cocaine deal going wrong in Topanga, isn't it? And it is very cinematic. Yeah. I mean, I brought up Manson talking about, about about the documentary, but that sense that you get in On the Beach, that, you know, the great song, when, when he becomes Manson. And Revolution talks about Blues. Revolution Brews and talks about coming over the hill in the buggies. And yeah. I hate them worse than lepers and I'll kill them in their cars, you know. Yeah. And, and yeah. for all the talk about it being autobiographical, you know, the moment that Neil can become other people, or, you know, you know, he talks a lot in his interviews about just being a channel, a vessel. Well, he's a vessel in, in these records for some very dark people and some very dark... He chose design. to look at the dark side of, of particularly Southern California in, in ways that his contemporaries were not willing to do. And the obstinacy, I mean, he, I'm just going to do what I want and I don't really care whether anyone's following. And I think that's why we still talk about and care about Neil Young so much. I think people forget, you know, again, you know, going back to the documentaries, there's this great bit in it in which he talks about a, a long career and the moments when you kind of disappear and are forgotten by and appear to have lost your mojo. And he talks about being in the trough of waves and then suddenly you come up out of nowhere and you're on the white caps and everybody's talking yes. about you again. And this didn't just happen to Neil, it happened to David Bowie just as much. And it's, you know, yeah. you know, most of the other artists who've stayed the course, you know, they've often had quite a lot of years in the wilderness. But without the wilderness years, and of course, you know, you know, commercially, these are Neil's wilderness years. But artistically, they're the reason we're still talking about Neil Young and the why everything he does still matters, you know, yeah. even if many of the records we've listened to in the last 10 years haven't necessarily thrilled us, you know. Yeah. They've kept Neil happy, and I love the fact that Warners have to keep churning them out due to whatever <laughs> contract he must have signed with them. But, he, <laughs> you know, I look back and I realise, you know, in recent years, I just haven't heard all Neil Young's records, and I can't believe that. But yeah. there are so many of them. Well, look, I mean, Archives Volume 2 is out in some kind of incredibly expensive special edition this week. I think it'll, it'll have a more general, cheaper, more general release in the spring of next year. But if you are a Neil Young fanatic, you're probably going to want to try and get it now, Volume 2. So, Mark, I think, you know, thanks so much for your reflections on 
you know, one of the one of the giant figures, I think, of a kind of American rock and roll. Mark, I think it's time to talk about the week's new audio interview. Yeah, this is little Steve Van Zandt, who just rechristened himself from his previous name as Miami Steve Van Zandt. Um, and his band, of Disciples of Soul, were playing in London that very night, their debut show on the 18th of October, 82. And it's John Tober interviewing him. And actually, going back to what Mark was saying about Elliot Roberts saying he, Neil just wants to talk about the current stuff. Steve clearly wants to talk about the Disciples of Soul. And Tobler being the deep archivist that he is, instantly goes into really, really granular ancient history. Um, <laughs> slightly to Steve's kind of horror. Though, to be fair, he, kind of, he does kind of join in. And talking about the very early days, he and Bruce Springsteen being different, basically bar bands, top 40 bands playing around Asbury Park. He talks about how you know he ended up in a band called Steel Mill, who he described as a metal band with Bruce in, in like 1968. Bruce then gets signed under the impression that he's, he's signed as a folk singer. So basically, Steve gets sacked from the band by Mike Apple, which is a very amusing element. Let's listen to a clip. This is talking about basically that sort of those days and, and the Jersey club circuit. And you run into each other, and we were a little different. His band and my band were a bit different than the rest of the bands in the area. Mm. Even then, we were a bit strange. Uh, <laughs> You're boasting. <laughs> which, uh, no, it, was, uh, it didn't help economically to be different. We really, i tell you the truth, it wasn't a conscious thing to, to be different. We just were. Him in particular, I, I have to say, he, he was writing songs then. And that was unheard of, you know, you just, I mean, we had just graduated from the instrumentals to vocals. I mean, there was, up until a few years before that, the bands in your high school, they were just instrumental bands. You didn't even sing. Let alone Ryan. <laughs> Um, so, so then he, he basically he talks about basically drops out for a while, becomes works in construction, um, and then sort of starts forming what becomes Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. I think we tend to forget that that was his band as much as Southside's band, and that he joined he joined Springsteen after the Asbury Jukes had got going around time Born to Run. He plays on I think about half of Born to Run. So, you know he talks about the creation of the Asbury Park scene around the Stone Pony, the club, the Stone Pony. And, you know, it's very interesting stuff. Then later on, uh, he, he talks about how, in fact, at this stage, Bruce really hadn't had any hits outside of the, the song Born to Run. Bruce hadn't had any hits. And we'll listen to this clip. This is about that. It's very hard to figure out how to get started these days. And what you think is... The key is with the record company, but it's not. That's not the key uh, to, to staying alive, not until you ha have a hit, mm. which for us has always been a bit elusive. I mean, <laughs> to this day, Bruce has had one hit single in one country, um, maybe two countries counting Canada.
I mean, it's, it's fascinating to, just to reflect. This is, this is 1982, and at that point, Bruce has only had one hit single. That's I right. mean, he's already a superstar. That's he's right. one hit single. Yeah, but it was born in the USA, which was a couple of years later, which really blew everything wide open. Uh, and then he talks later on about, about Cypress of Soul. And I'm afraid it's one of the problems I have with Little Stephen, both with Southside Johnny and Cypress Soul, and to some extent, the problem I have with Bruce Springsteen is how reactionary he is. He's looking back to a sort of, sort of golden age of particularly Motown. You know, if you listen to the Disciples of Soul album, the snare's on every beat, back and back and back and back. You know, it's like, come on, mate, this is 1982. Grace Jones just had a hit last year. You know, Laurie Anderson's having hits. And to have this guy harping on about this golden age, stuck in my crawl. For, for yeah, sure. but then Grace Jones wasn't playing in covers bands in 1965. <laughs> uh, I think yeah, when but, I, you know, that's, yeah, but, that's yeah, what but, he comes but, out of. Yeah, but Grace had been a standard disco diva not many years before and yet reinvents herself. So I, I think the point still stands, you know. Anyway, he's very, he's very engaging and it's, it's a very nice interview. We're running it because he's turning 70 this week, I Oof. should mention. Oof. So happy uh, birthday to Steve. Mark Cooper, I'm going to have to address you by your surname to distinguish you from my colleague. What is your, <laughs> what's your take on Miami little Steve, Stephen Van Zandt? I think he's a great foil and support to Bruce. But yep. it's interesting talking about soul and Bruce because I guess what was quite radical about Bruce and, you know, even in 78, going to see him on the River Tour, there was a sense of a secret. You know, even though he was playing, what, probably a 5,000, you know, um, amphitheater or gym or whatever it was, in, in, you know, he was very much still breaking through. He wasn't the Bruce Springsteen of Born in the USA, which t- turned him into a superstar. He was a secret with a very what felt like at the time a very truthful working-class view of America. And what was quite radical about Bruce, and, and indeed bored to run, was his the way Bruce, rather more cleverly, I think, than Miami Steve, absorbed the soul tradition through Clarence Clements. And, you know, when you think of the cover of Born to Run and you think of the great horn breaks, the great sax breaks from Clarence, there's something, you know, that was really radical about the idea of that cover and, and that fusion of sort of rock and roll and the true embrace of soul music as part of it. Because going back to what we were talking about earlier, there there was so much division in American music, and Bruce refused those true traditions, and I'm sure Miami Steve helped with that. But I think the trope of it was Clarence. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that Van Morrison probably affected that fusion before Bruce did, but But, but not not in in the way that Bruce did it. I'd agree, but not in a way in an American story. Great as, you know, band songs are, they're kind of more mm-hmm. personal and poetic, whereas Bruce sets everything in an American landscape, you know, as he himself would be the first to say, so many of the songs are about cars and the highway and the leaving the home and, you know, lighting out for the territory. You know, they're, they're, sure. they're, they're so fused with the American experience. Mm-hmm. And in the American experience, certainly at that time and certainly in the music landscape, black and white didn't meet. And yet they're on the cover of Born to Run is a black and white man together. One of the things I loved about the audio, Mark, is at odd moments you can hear the voice of Silvio Dante in The Sopranos yes. coming through. <laughs> and, and, of course, you know, he's had a wonderful career. So yeah, he, yeah. Comes across, he's, he comes across very, very genial and genuine yes. in this audio. He's, he's so likeable, uh, just a delight. 
He's a mensch, um, isn't he? He's a proper mensch. He's a real mensch. <laughs> and he is that in The Sopranos. He just has yes. that wonderful, rather long, sort of hangdog face, looks back at you with a twinkle <laughs> and rather balefully. And, yeah. you know, he's, he's one just... of the few sort of non-sociopathic, totally sociopathic characters in The Sopranos. I mean, if one, one actually sort of warms to any of them, and you do warm to Tony, of course. Silvio is, is the sort of, seems like the least sort of horrible <laughs> member of his crew. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely, I think. But probably still a killer. <laughs> oh, oh, when when the occasion demands, when <laughs> when there's a job to be done. Oh yeah, he gets <laughs> he gets it done for sure. But but I mean he's had a wonderful career, hasn't he? He's, he's, done, a say of, a, he's done a lot of philanthropic or activist kind of yes. stuff as well. I mean uh, with music education as well as anti apartheid things as well. I think it's worth mentioning that he you know is tried on that front as well. Yeah, his Teach Rock program actually utilizes Rock's Back Pages content. So you um, thank you, little Stephen. Oh. <laughs> Here we are with the new Bruce Springsteen album, which obviously gets the band back together and then reflects on the journey of the band. And I, yeah. I, I, Miami Steve is there because whenever Bruce calls, he's ready, isn't he? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, it is a really nice interview, I have to say. And even if, like Mark, I can't say I like the little Stephen Disciples albums very much. Or still tall. see them as... Or, <laughs> as or even at all. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Steve. Sorry. But quite fun live, I suspect, you know. Yeah, probably. Probably. I think it's time now to just address some of the new pieces that have yeah. found their way into the library, Mr Pringle. Absolutely. Starting off, Disco Music Echo... 4th of February 1967, Penny Valentine sees an endless bill, but topped by the four tops at the Albert Hall. And, you know, she was just raving. She says, not even in the wildest moments of our wildest dreams could any of us have imagined what happened on Saturday night at London's Albert Hall, the second appearance in Britain of the four tops. It was the Savile Theatre 20 times over. It was a spectacle on a scale you wouldn't have expected outside a mammoth film production. It was the fanatical exaltations, the Nuremberg rallies, the incredible enthusiasm of a World Cup crowd. Wow. I, mean, I just, I just love, you know, there's some serious hyperbole going on there. <laughs> Lillian Roxon meets David Bowie. It's just, it's actually, it's about merchandise. It's very interesting. It's 72 for the New York Sunday News. And it's about the idea of merchandise, because a lot of other things have merchandise, but rock merchandise hadn't really sort of emerged at this point. And she says, if you put out a David Bowie doll with seven changes of wardrobe, I'd buy it, I told David. Imagine what a collector's item that would be, long after Ken and Barbie are forgotten. I am a David doll, he said, jumping up and letting his hands flop loosely at his side. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Mark, that could, you, great could, could you actually David, stand David up Bowie when you do that? I could see Mark's hands, but I couldn't quite see it on camera. You did a very good <laughs> loose dropping of the wrists. <laughs> <laughs> I went quote from it but it's an obituary in, in january 76 max jones on hound dog taylor and i'm just going to mention that because i think hound dog taylor is a much underrated and important bluesman no hound dog taylor no john spencer blues explosion no john spencer blues explosion no white stripes you know it's, it's mm -hmm. a straight line mm. you know the bands without a bass player very crude two guitars and drums and nothing else so he had a cure for, for a fairly minor bluesman he had a curiously deep influence just worth mentioning that Your old colleague on the record mirror, Barry Kane, in 1978, 
interviewing Dan Hartman. Now, I think Dan Hartman's marvellous, and this is around the time Instant Replay had been a big hit. And he's talking about the Edgar Winter Band here. He says, we said to each other, our idyllic lives together would never end. How wrong can you be? We were halfway through our last tour. <laughs> and then he's talking about Instant Replay. He says, I know we're going to get criticised for being a disco thing, but when you really think about it, disco is rock and roll, and rock and roll is disco. Uh, I posted that on Facebook and got a very mixed bunch of receptions. <laughs> <laughs> Predictably. Um, and last one, which is rather sad in light of who he was and what happened. He says, this is the best period of my life, musically and personally. I'm in love with my music and I'm in love with my girl. Well, here's a closeted gay man who eventually died of AIDS. So, he, so he's maintaining the closet, okay. his place in the closet in this interview in that very specific way. Mm. Culture Club's John Moster, Max Bell, number one, 1984. I mean, there's something about this early ages English pop musicians who were naked in their ambition and materialism. He says, he says there's no beer cans lying around, no drugs. It's not like the Rolling Stones. He says, Making records is like running a business. You've got to give people the best possible value. Ugh. Right. <laughs> you alluded That's to what that my Young Gun series was about. Exactly. And, and John was exactly. such a great spearhead for that because he was so focused. Yeah. You know, yeah. he knew what the goal was. And in a way, there's a clearing out there, isn't there? You know, we talk about each generation coming along. Sure. In a way, he's clearing out all the tropes of excess and self-indulgent of the stones and saying, uh, here's the new goal. And that's absolutely right. As to some extent did, um, let's say, Spandau Ballet, who were prone to making very, very similar sort of statements about their role in the, in the business. Billy Idols to Chris Needs, Cream 1986. People have got really gone out of their way to say how shitty I am. They take the idle stuff seriously. I mean, I feel silly. This is, I didn't want to be the Velvet Underground. I always wanted to be Billy Idol, and I suppose that's my biggest triumph. I'm very fond of Billy Idol. I know I shouldn't be, you know, but there is something, and I love reading interviews with him. He, you know, he's kind of posh boy, you know, and he's got a sort of quite posh charm that he can really turn on. He's very funny. And actually, you know, doesn't bullshit. He's, he's, he, he's got a sense of humour towards himself. He doesn't take himself... Mark, have you read his autobiography? No, I haven't. Is oh, it good? It's fantastic. Okay. Lots of, lots of tales of, you know, starting out in Bromley and the punk scene. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, obviously, before you know it, he's on MTV. He's joining the Five Mile High Club. He's boasting of his latest conquest. And there's a kind, <laughs> there's a kind, of, there's a kind of honesty, stroke, yeah. you know... Um, naivety about him which is an yeah. odd thing to say and i think that's true of the records as well who doesn't like hearing white wedding when it comes oh to it's a fantastic record and, and, and dancing myself i mean he made he made right you can just say a handful of really great singles but my god they're really great singles how to be a lover how to be a lover how can you on the one hand feel utterly bogus and utterly authentic at the same time that's what billy idol does all the time isn't yeah it? that's great Oh, Curtis Mantronic, interviewed by Tom Doyle for Smash Hits in 1990. And it's one of those typical Smash Hits interviews where there's sort of set questions, which are all ludicrous. And one of the questions is, who would you fancy the most? And one of them is Margaret Thatcher. And he says, I wouldn't go out with Margaret Thatcher because she has no compassion and she can't dress. And I don't like the way she does her hair. It's like he's taking the question seriously, which I think is just fantastic, which is kind of the point of Smash Hits, is to have the artist take the question seriously and then just, like, when in print, it just is ridiculous. I was watching Gillian Anderson as Margaret yes. Thatcher in yes. The Crown last night. So it's a quite vivid sort of image. <laughs> Very la lastly, Stephen Dalton interviewed Cheryl Crow for The Enemy and 
October 96, and he really doesn't like her, and he kind of says here why. He says, Cheryl's music reeks of that ferociously bland conservatism that only the spiritually bankrupt wasteland of Los Angeles can inspire. Though pleasant enough one on their own, her cod boho, neo hippie, woozy, bluesy saloon bar singalongs embody everything truly evil about the West Coast corporate MOR rock. Oh, that's very succinct. I love it. That's what I love about music writing because, and I'm sure you felt this, Barney, as well. And having done singles reviews for weekly papers, we know this is true. That is great copy. It's true, but so is the absolute opposite. You know, because Cheryl, Cheryl is a great songwriter, a great singer, uh, and her own character in her own way. And the Tuesday, was it Tuesday Night Music Club? That debut yeah. record was a great produced and great sounding record with lots of great songs. And yet you can see exactly why someone would write that about her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also, I just, I love my job. I love writing. It's just great to read. Stephen Wells, for example. I suspect Stephen and I would never have had any records in common in our record collection. But I'll read him every day of the week because he's just marvellous, you mm. know. The great, um, we love yeah. the great hatchet jobs because often they tell, oh, I us, do. They I tell do. us why yeah. we like something as well as confirming why we hate things. <laughs> Over to you guys. Have you got anything to... I know we're very short on time. I'll mention two things very quickly from the last 20 years. One is Mick Brown's 2004 interview with Prince, which really reminded me of the interview I did with Prince because it's just a horrible situation where you're not allowed to use a tape recorder. So you're trying to have this conversation with this mischievous and (laughs) difficult character while writing down what he's saying and it's a bit of a nightmare so and mick is just very funny about prince he he talks about the quick fire stream of consciousness butterflying from one non sequitur to the next the slightly arch prissy turns of phrase that prince uses Uh, it it really accords with my memory and the second piece just because it's timely was this interview from four years ago just before the presidential elections annie defranco folk singer with a you know a pronounced sort of political conscience talking to jim sullivan and she mentions this song that Woody Guthrie wrote about Donald Trump's father, Fred, the unspeakable racist landlord, Fred Trump. And it's just chilling to read this when Trump hasn't even got into power. But she says, it's so brilliant that Woody was on the case with the fascist specter that is Donald Trump looming over America right now. Wow. So I thought I'd just throw that in. That will be the pull quote on the homepage this week. Jasper, over to you. I'll also just mention a couple of things just very briefly. The first of which is a piece from 2000 in The Guardian, Caroline Sullivan doing one of the things that Caroline Sullivan does best, which is writing about girl bands. And this is right, obviously, when the Spice Girls are at their highest star and, and everybody wants to be the Spice Girls. And one Mr. Simon Cowell created a group called Girl Thing. <laughs> which is a, it's a very funny article just kind of saying this is a completely ridiculous that you know even pop fans can tell that this is just a rip-off so cowl is quoted in it obviously not enough people wanted to buy the record cowl admits maybe it is a bit close to wannabe 
We wouldn't have released it if we'd known there'd be such a backlash. It's <laughs> very funny. So that's... I've totally forgotten the existence of girl thing, yeah, I have yeah. to say. It's fascinating. Even Caroline Sullivan's not just interested in the girl group. She's always interested in their managers, too. She was writing about the people behind the Spice Girls yeah. very early on. You know, she, she's very good on that. And the other piece, which might sort of superficially seem to be linked because it's about Sher Lloyd, Pip Williams writing for the line of best fit this year. Sher Lloyd, the X Factor contestant initially, who's since tried to make her own way in the music industry. And, you know, superficially, again, might just seem like another X Factor contestant, but did face a lot of racism because she's from the traveller community. So there was a lot of stuff that, that she had to deal with and is kind of coming out of. And it's a funny interview that Pip conducts and it's during lockdown and Sher Lloyd cannot think of anything worse than taking up bread making in lockdown so it's a kind of timely <laughs> interview in that sense for us now in lockdown too but it's also nice because on the last podcast we talked about Dolly Parton and Sher Lloyd talks about Dolly Parton growing up listening to Dolly Parton I got my inspiration for writing songs that actually tell a story and have meaning on the flip side I love Nicki Minaj because of her delivery her attack when she delivers she can sound almost angry and then she can sound really soft and delicate it's the different shades that she's able to put on a record. So it's, it's, she's talking quite sort of intelligently yeah, yeah. about songwriting in a, in a way that I think is interesting. By the way, did you know that Dolly Parton is one of the investors in one of the pharma yes. companies? Yeah. Yes. In, in, one of the in, in the Modema vaccine. Yeah. Vaccine, 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 vaccine. <laughs> isn't that a great story? And isn't it a classic Dolly story? Because yes. there she is, our fairy godmother. And by the way, did you know she's got a new Christmas DVD and record coming out? <laughs> I always never have guessed. There, being Dolly. She knows how to sell that woman. Yeah, she's great. She's great. I mean, you know, and, and you know, we know she didn't vote for Trump. She's, she, she's, I mean, Barney's my sort of suspicion is that so many of the southern artists we love bloody voted for Trump last time. In a number of cases, have been proved completely correct. But I don't think that's the case with, with, with Dolly. I, I'd just... like to think, but isn't Dolly Parton's genius that probably somebody who did vote for Trump also loves her? Yes. She has that genius for being yes. all things to all men and always yeah. being profoundly yes. American. And, yeah. you know, walking yes. that line a bit like Johnny Cash, that, you know, Johnny Cash and could be a great yeah. radical in terms of supporting, I don't know, working class or Native Americans. But, you know, he would also go and sing to the troops in Vietnam. So yeah. with Billy Graham. Yeah. So exactly. Yeah. That's what that's no, what no, it no, takes no, in America no. to walk the line, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Is that it, Just? That's it. Okay, brilliant. Well, look, it remains for us to thank you so much, Mark Cooper, for joining <laughs> Mark Pringle, <laughs> Jasper Marison Boat, and myself. Flashy uh, the what... peace sign. <laughs> yeah, peace <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been really great talking to you about Neil Young and later with Jules Holland and everything else. So thanks for being here. And Mark, would you talk us out with the third and last Steve Van Zandt Yeah, it's, it's, it's just basically him talking about the disciples of soul. Great. Well, see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. 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 I wanted serious guys who were into the work and into into what I'm all about rather than uh, show business or something, you know. I'm trying to I'm trying to break the old stereotypes of what rock and roll is because I feel it's different now. I, I don't want anybody doing any drugs and drinking or having women around or, or any of those 
cliches, you know, that um, I feel are no longer relevant in, in today's world. I mean, I'm basically all of that show business stuff. You know, the whole concept of it being entertainment it, for me is no longer relevant. You know? Even if it's all That was Steve Van Zandt in conversation with John Tobler in 1982, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Mark Cooper, the hosts of Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. <laughs> <laughs>